Our scripture passage this morning from Mark chapter 1, verses 14 down to verse 39, which you'll find on page 836 and 837 of the Pew Bible. Last Sunday, we began a series of studies in the Gospel of Mark that will take us through till next summer at some point. Um, And uh, we began to look at the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as Mark makes the proclamation in verse 1 of chapter 1. And now we're going to read of the beginning of Jesus' ministry as it has now been inaugurated by His baptism and temptation in the wilderness. Begin reading with me in verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum and immediately into the, on uh, the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. He healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. If you're in middle school or high school, or if you remember middle school and high school, you may have had to read the novel Lord of the Flies. It's a particular story in which is set in World War II in Britain. And a group of boys have been shipwrecked on an island having left the island of Britain and sought shelter during the war. And during their time on the island, they go from being very disciplined and 
organized young military students to becoming murderers. See, during their time on the island, they begin to divide up and factions form and they begin to fight with one another so that by the end of the novel, or if you've seen the movie, the end of the movie, two murders among the young boys have already taken place and a third is just about to happen before the the, uh, book comes to its conclusion. And really what the author is doing is making an indictment on the human soul, the human heart that is so corrupt that wherever we go and whatever we seek to do in society, it turns to decay and to destruction. Every culture, every society, every kingdom on this earth since the fall of mankind has given itself to destruction, to corruption, and to immorality. And that's exactly what the author wants us to understand about the human heart. Because left to ourselves, that's exactly what we have done. You see, there's only one kingdom in this world that can bring peace and righteousness. Only one kingdom where goodness dwells, and it's the kingdom of God. Only God can reclaim a world that has been cursed, And that has gone headlong into sin and destruction and murder, just like in the novel Lord of the Flies. Only the rule of God can reestablish a kingdom here where peace and justice prosper. And Jesus tells us of this great kingdom in this passage. He says in verse 14, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. The good news of God. And what is the good news? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The time has come. The time of preparation has now been completed with the arrest and beheading of John the Baptist. All the Old Testament was preparatory for the work that Jesus would do to build his kingdom right here. And now that the time has come, he tells us the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near, some translations would say. It's the long-awaited kingdom of God, the long-awaited rule of God that would break into history, into time and space, and establish His reign over all things. Now that was misunderstood by the Jews of first century Palestine. Because their understanding of the reign of God, of the the kingdom of God, is that it would be localized. That it would be confined to this small, scrap piece of land in the Middle East. But Jesus has cosmic designs for His kingdom. Not just one little country, but the entire universe that He draws in to His kingdom and rules over it. And the reason that Jesus can say the kingdom is at hand is because the king has come. All throughout the Old Testaments, there have been hints and shadows and proclamations that God would send one who would establish his kingdom and his great rule over all the earth. If you remember back in Genesis chapter 49, when Jacob pronounced blessings upon all of his sons and he said to Judah, the scepter will not depart from Judah. 
And if we trace the scepter out throughout the line of Judah, we go through David until we come to Jesus Christ, the son of David, who will hold the scepter for all of eternity and reign over his kingdom forever and ever. It's the picture of Psalm 2 that we've already seen as God the Father has pronounced the blessings and the identification of the Son of the Messiah on Jesus at His baptism. When He told Jesus, You are my beloved Son. With You I am well pleased. Ask of Me, Psalm 2 says, and I will give You the nations as Your inheritance. And so Jesus now comes as the one who has been awaited for all of these centuries. That all the promises of the kingdom would rest upon him so that he could now say the kingdom is at hand. And it's an inbreaking of a glorious kingdom, a glorious kingdom where when we look at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, what we see is that. The curse is now taken away and the people of God dwell on the earth as heaven has come down to earth and dwell with God forever and ever in the land of peace and righteousness. And Jesus is building this kind of kingdom and no other kingdom will overcome it. And if that's true, then we need to ask a few important questions of this particular passage. Here's the first. How do you enter into the kingdom of God? How do you enter into the kingdom of God? Well, there's there's only one right response, and he tells us the response in verse 15. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. It's no new message. It's the same message that has been preached throughout the Old Testament by the prophets. Repent of your sins and and trust in the King. And he's saying now you see the King right before your eyes and repent. Turn from ruling over your own life. Turn from being master of your own fate. And receive me and my kingly rule over you. And ultimately receive my cross that you might be saved from your sins. See, the only way to enter into the kingdom of God is to be as righteous as the king. And there is no one as righteous as the king in this world. And since God cannot grade on a curve, he doesn't allow the good to outweigh the bad. He is willing to send His own Son to be the suffering King who would offer Himself up on the cross being punished for their sins that they might be as righteous as He is. The shadow here of the cross is looming over Jesus' ministry. For Him to proclaim the kingdom is at hand means that He knows it will take my death on the cross to establish this kingdom and to bring in people from every tribe and tongue into my kingdom. Because for them to enter means that they need to have someone sacrificed on their behalf. And so he says, repent and believe. Come to Him. You may remember 
at the end of the movie or end of the book, The Lord of the Flies. The way that it ends is this young boy who is running from his, for his life from all the other boys who literally want to kill him. He falls on the beach and weeps. And when he looks up, what he sees is a British officer standing there because a ship had passed by and they'd seen the forest fire as the boys were trying to flush out this other young boy so that they could find him and kill him. And the officer stands on the beach. And this boy just weeps. And up runs all the others. Who are like native savages ready to kill him. And they stop dead in their tracks. And they begin to weep too. And what they see is the disgust of their own sin. And all the sense of shame and guilt for what they have done in this short period of time just becomes an overwhelming tidal wave that just rushes over them. And you see, when we stand in the presence of Jesus, He says the kingdom is at hand because I am here. And if we have eyes to see, then we want to repent of our sins and believe in the only one who can save us. And that's in Christ Himself. But notice the response of the people here to Jesus' preaching. We're told in verse 21 that Jesus was in Capernaum and He entered into the synagogue and He was teaching there. And there was a man who, had a, uh, who was possessed by a demon and Jesus cast out that demon. They say, saw mighty works of Christ. They saw Him teach and preach upon the kingdom. And we're told twice in 22... They were astonished at his, ting, at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And in verse 27, they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this, a, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the spirits, the unclean spirits, and they obey him. They're amazed at his authority, and yet there's no re, a record of a response. My friends, probably the saddest thing that could happen today the saddest thing is if we, including myself, were to walk out those doors and people were to say something like, well, that was a nice sermon. And then never think of it again. You know what it's like Monday, Tuesday, you, you can't even remember what the sermon was about. Sometimes that's true of me. I wonder, what did I preach on the Sunday before? And it's almost as if in the parable of the sower where, where Satan comes along and grabs the seed and removes it from the heart so that we don't trust. And yet it's the spiritually mature person in Psalm 1 who meditates upon the law of God day and night. And that is to be our job as we leave from here that we consider, that we contemplate, that we meditate upon the Word and all the implications and applications for our lives. Because there are far more than what I can say this morning. But as you leave and go about your day today, don't let what happened in Capernaum be true here in Hendersonville today. But rather, meditate upon the Word. Let it do its work in us Notice another response in 
Verse 28, we're told that his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And so here as he left, we're, we're told that he went to Simon's house. And it's there that people after sundown begin to bring all their sick and the oppressed by demons and Jesus heals them. But yet, they still didn't respond with repentance and faith. Even the disciples didn't understand. Look in verse 36 and 37. Simon and those who were looking uh, were looking for him, searched for him, because Jesus had left early in the morning to go pray. They found him and said to him, everyone's looking for you. There's more to do here. There are more people who are sick who need to be healed. There are more demons that need to be cast out. You see, they were satisfied for Jesus simply to be a miracle worker rather than for, the, for Him to be the King and the Savior of their souls. And that ought not happen to us either. Where Jesus comes into our lives as a, as a lucky rabbit's foot and if He will just give me good things and if He will just make my life more comfortable, then I'll be faithful to serve Him. But rather we come and we say, Lord Jesus, be my Lord. Be my King. Rule over me and be my Savior. That was Peter's failure right up to the end, wasn't it? He had no clue what Jesus had come to do. So much so that he would rebuke Jesus when Christ spoke of his imminent death on the cross. And Jesus had had to say to Peter, get behind me, Satan. My friends, that kind of response is not a biblical response, but it's rather to repent and to believe in Christ. You see. We are those people who want to look upon the cross of Jesus. We look upon Christ as He is broken, as His body is ravaged before us, and we submit to Him and say, may that be for me. May that be for me. And you see the, the public nature of the crucifixion where Jesus was bruised and broken and crucified before a watching world is a declaration to the rest of the world. And as we repent and believe in Christ, it's our declaration to the rest of the world. That's how bad I am. That's how bad I am. That I need the Son of God, the King of all creation, to do that for me. So how do you enter the kingdom? You repent and believe in the Gospel. And receive Him as Savior. And for those who are willing to receive the Gospel, it's really as if we're entering into a whole different world, isn't it? You may remember what that's like when you first became a Christian. It's like you're entering into a whole new realm, a whole new dimension. What is this life I've been living? Things look different now. But another thing that begins to happen is the powers of the Kingdom of God begin to be unleashed in our lives. And that's the second question we want to ask is what happens when the powers of the kingdom of God are unleashed in our lives? Well, the first thing is this. What we see when the powers of the kingdom are unleashed is one, the forces of evil 
are overcome. The forces of evil are overcome. There's this cosmic struggle between Christ and Satan that has been going on since the beginning. And here we see a picture of that as this evil spirit, this unclean spirit confronts Jesus saying, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. The Holy One of God. You see, what this demon wanted to do was to sidetrack Jesus' ministry. To make public who He is. To stir up a sense of disturbance about Jesus before it was His time to be crucified. He was trying to gain a sense of power over Jesus. And Jesus will have none of it. And what does He say? Verse 25, Jesus rebuked Him saying, Be silent and come out of Him. Be silent and come out of Him. With just a few words, Jesus exercises His all-encompassing authority over this demon. It's reminiscent of how God just spoke and the entire universe came into existence. And that same power dwells in Jesus to overcome Satan and all those who are aligned with Satan. And that is important for us today, my friends, because it's that same power that delivers us from the forces of evil. You may remember Paul's writings to the church in Philip or in um, uh, Ephesus, where he says in chapter two, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In other words, all those who are outside of Jesus by faith are under the authority and power of Satan. And they don't even know it. Just like this man stood in the synagogue and even the elders did not know on a weekly basis that this man was under the power of a demon. And yet Jesus is able to deliver not only him, but He's able to deliver you and me as well. For Paul would go on to say, but God being rich in mercy... Because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Do you understand that at one time, if you were in Christ by faith, you were blind. You could not see. It didn't matter if you heard the Gospel preached. Unless God made you alive, you could not receive the kingdom of God. You could not repent. You see, it's not that Jesus threw you a life raft. It's that He went all the way to the bottom of the ocean where you lay dead and pulled you out and raised you up and took you to shore and breathed life into you. My friends, unless He exercises that authority over the forces of evil, you are condemned forever and ever. And yet that's the kind of power that's unleashed when Christ comes. Well, the second thing is this. Not only are the forces of evil overthrown, but secondly, healing. Healing begins to take place. We're told in verse 29 that 
when Jesus and the disciples left the synagogue, they entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John, and that Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And immediately they told him about her. And what does Jesus do? But he goes and we're told he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve them. Now, you wouldn't know what it's like to have a fever. You have the flu, you suffer from a fever for a day or two. And when it is past, you feel better and relief, but for a number of days, you still feel weak and as if your body has been sapped of energy. Yet what does it say? It says that she began to serve them. You see, it's a complete healing that Jesus brings when He brings healing into people's lives. It's a restoration here that foreshadows the the full sense of healing and restoration that God will bring into the world. That He will remove the curse that is because of sin and that same curse that, that brings death and destruction, that brings disease, will one day be wiped away. And just as in the Garden of Eden was the tree of life that represented the life that God and only God could give, a life of prosperity, a life of glory, When you get to the end of the Scriptures in chapter 22 of Revelation, the tree of life is once again in the midst of God's people. And we're told that its leaves are for the healing of the nations. For the healing of the nations. Think of all the death and destruction throughout history. All the disease. All the conflict. All the broken relationships. Think of all that Satan brings into this world of financial ruin, of addictions, of a life of idolatry. And so often we we don't even understand what our idols are and we're giving ourselves to them and serving them wholeheartedly and they bend and contort our lives. What Christ is doing is bringing healing into the world. Wholeness once again. And we today experience the first fruits of that healing as the kingdom comes among us as well. You know, we need to know that we have to be realistic about the kingdom of God because the picture that Jesus gives us at the end, though that kingdom has been inaugurated, though those powers of the kingdom are at work here now, It's not yet a consummated kingdom. And so bad things still happen to the people of God. We're told in our church standards, the Westminster Confession of Faith, that that in God's providence, at times He works according to means. That is to say, a doctor prescribes medication and the medication works to bring healing. At other times, God works uh, against means. Sometimes He works above means. And sometimes He even works without means. In some miraculous fashion. But other times He simply straightens out our lives as we begin to submit to His kingly rule. For as we submit to His kingly rule and our idols begin to fall by the wayside, 
our addictions begin to fall by the wayside. Our broken relationships are repaired. Reconciliation takes place. He begins to bring healing. And what I think is important for us to see here is that the powers of the kingdom, though they won't be exercised as they will be in glory one day, they're being exercised right here. The kingdom has come. As Herman Ritterboss said, because the kingdom of God has entered into this world, we must say that this world is full of the redemptive power of God. It's full of the redemptive power of God. So that brings transformation and healing. And what it means for us is that we work and we labor in the same direction that we hope. If our hope is the, the final consummation of the kingdom, then we're working now for the first fruits of that kingdom to be exercised through us. That we are ambassadors for Christ. We are agents of the kingdom that go into the world that seek to see and experience those kingdom powers unleashed as Christ unleashes them in us and through us. My friends, what's your hope for Hendersonville? What is your hope for Hendersonville? I hope that it's not simply to have a a safe little church to attend because that's not at all what Christ is doing in the world. I hope it's far greater than that. I hope your vision for the community, your vision for this world is greater than that. And that what you hope for is that the kingdom comes with greater power right here as people submit to the rule of the king and experience his kingdom powers. See, right out those doors are broken lives. And even within these doors are lives that are still marred by the curse and by the effects of sin. Do you believe that Jesus has the power to bring salvation here? To bring transformation here? Because His power is abounding in this passage. His teaching with authority. His casting out demons. His healing people over and over. Jesus leaves His footprint wherever He goes. And He is here. And we want the powers of the kingdom to be unleashed here. You see, to understand that, it really shapes the tone of our church, doesn't it? It ought to bring a sense of of joyful expectancy that we're on our toes wondering, what's God going to do next? What great work of salvation is He going to do? How is the power of the kingdom going to be unleashed in our midst today? So that we come and gather for worship and we're worshiping that kind of great king, wondering what is he going to do in us? What is he going to do through us? Makes us become a people of prayer, doesn't it? That we want to pray down all those blessings of the kingdom. That they would be right here. Shapes how we look at our neighbors too and desire for the kingdom to break into their lives just as it has broken into our lives. Well, we need to move on here. I have much more to say about that. But let me ask a final question. How do you participate in the expansion of the kingdom? How do you participate? You know, we pray every Sunday 
Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. Well, Jesus gives us a picture of that right here in verses 16 through 19. He's having preached his sermon. He's walking along the Sea of Galilee. He sees Simon and Andrew. They have been fishing. And he says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And going on a little further in verse 19, we're told that he sees James and John who were fishing partners with Simon and Andrew. They were in their boat mending nets and immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and they followed him. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Now, this image of being fishers of men in the Old Testament was actually spoken of God, that he is a fisher of men. And that what he would do was gather together people for judgment. And the picture here is actually that that not only uh, is Jesus out gathering people, but his disciples will be fishermen along with him who will gather people in order to rescue them from the coming judgment that's at hand. So they are to bring people to Jesus. But you know, fishing is a messy task. It's smelly. It's gross at times. If you've ever cleaned fish, you don't get the smell off of your hands anytime soon. And that's the kind of work that Jesus calls us to. I remember fishing on the pier at Hunting Island with uh, my two oldest children and we borrowed some rod and reels from the pier and set out and we were casting our, our uh, lines out. And while we were there, the thing that we noticed is that everyone was catching sharks, small sharks, maybe 18 inches long. And that's exactly what we began to reel in, sharks of different types. And what we heard was that we had to catch and release because the, the, uh, the limitation was that the sharks had to be four feet long before you could keep them. And of course, my children hearing that said, wow, dad, let's let's catch a shark four feet long. And as I told them, we're not prepared to catch a shark four feet long. We have no net. I have no gloves. I have no pair of pliers. If we caught a shark four feet long, we wouldn't know what to do with it. At times, that's how we feel, too. We're not prepared to be fishers of men. We're not prepared to do what you're asking, Jesus, to go and to bring people to you. You know, some of us have messier lives than others, but everybody has a messy life to some extent. And fishing can be messy when you when you get in with people. You begin to rub shoulders with them and you learn all of the, the filth of their lives and you hear all the brokenness and pain that needs to be healed. And sometimes they, they demand much of you. Emotional energy, spiritual energy, physical energy. And Jesus says, this is the kind of life I'm calling you to. Every one of you. That you would follow me and become fishers of men. Now to be a good fisherman needs, means that you have to follow the master fisherman, Right? If you want to be a good fisherman in this life, you, you go with someone who is very good at fishing and you watch them. You observe what they do and you try to do the same things. And if we want to be good 
fishers of men, then we need to draw close to the master fisherman and watch him as he goes fishing for people. Watch what he does and the way that he loves them, the message that he proclaims, the manner in which he goes about ministering to other people so that we too would learn to be fishers of men. We watch him closely. Jesus says, follow me, draw close to me. It's why in verse uh, 38, he says, let us go to the next towns. Not let me go, but let us go that you would see me. And the work that I'm doing. And the closer we draw near to Christ, the more we understand of His gospel and of His work in the world, the better fishermen we become. We need to learn to bring people to Jesus. And, and actually, some people are just that. I've known a lot of people who are bringers. They may not be good at articulating the gospel, but they bring people they become an open doorway through which other people come into the church and begin to hear the gospel of grace. And sometimes that's all it takes. Come and see, the woman at the well said. Just come and see. And that ought to be true of us as fishers of men that we say, come and see. And to first be a fisher of men you means you, you have to be caught in the net of Jesus yourself. You have to be caught in His net so that you grow in His grace and want to be, bring people to Him. I uh, heard a story from a friend who's a pastor. He planted a church uh, not too far from here, actually. And a little while after the church got started and they began to worship together, one of the things that he noticed is there was a, a military officer that was coming. He began to attend on a regular basis, and after a while, he noticed that the military officer had left. And one day he saw him on the street, and they began to talk, and the pastor said, Now, I was so glad that you were coming to our church, but I've noticed lately that your attendance has dropped off. Why is that? He said, Pastor, I'm a Marine, and I know a mission when I see one. And you, sir, you were on a mission. But over time, I realized that the, the mission had become clouded. And it wasn't clear anymore. And that's not the kind of church that I want to be a part of. Friends, are we on a mission? Are we? Are we on a mission right here? Are we on a mission to extend the kingdom here and throughout the rest of the world? Have you entered the kingdom? Have you received His mercy and grace? Have you seen the powers of the kingdom at work in your life? And do you want for other people to know that too? If so, then you can say, yes, we're on a mission. And we are. And by God's grace, that's exactly what we will do. Is we will go out into the world to be fishers of men and women and boys and girls and say, come and see. Come and see the great King. Know of His saving grace and experience all the power of His kingdom in your life. May that be true of us today. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father.
May we not be somber. May we not sleep. May we not slumber. But may we look upon Jesus with a sense of joyful expectation about what He is doing here. And that we would go out into this world to be fishers of men and draw people in for the great excitement and joy that we have experienced in our salvation. That we would bring people to You as You do the great work of opening their eyes that they might see the glory of the King. Lord, may that be Your work among us today. Stir us up, we pray, to that end. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.